Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 19, the book of Hosea, chapters 10 and 11. Well, I ended our previous lesson speaking about a most crucial understanding that is necessary for a proper perspective, not only of the source of our salvation, but also what that means for us in a, in a broader sense. Now the source is Yeshua, Jesus the Christ. But what it means is that through the most selfless act of courage and love that the world has ever known or will ever know, He has joined us who were at one time strangers to the covenants between God and Israel, those who were excluded from them, in order for us to be in union with those covenants and with Jesus Himself, who is the goal and embodiment of those covenants. And yet, this can only happen for those who trust in Yeshua as Messiah and in His Father as the God of Israel. Ephesians speaks about it, Ephesians 2. 11 through 13, therefore remember your former state, you Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcised by those who merely because of an operation on their flesh are called the circumcised. At that time you had no Messiah. You were estranged from the national life of Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants that embody God's promise. You were in this world without hope and without God. But now, you who once were far off have been brought near through the shedding of the Messiah's blood. And then moving down a little further in Ephesians 2, starting at verse 19, So then, you're no longer foreigners and strangers. On the contrary, you are fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's family. You have been built on the foundation of the emissaries and the prophets, with the cornerstone being Yeshua the Messiah Himself. In union with Him, the whole building is held together, and it is growing into a holy temple in union with the Lord. Yes, in union with Him, you yourselves are being built together into a spiritual dwelling place for God. But this trust this is speaking of must be maintained. It can't be a one-time declaration or event. I mean, Hosea and the Torah teach us that God will rescind redemption should this trust prove itself to have been abandoned by us, despite our urgent pleadings that it's not so. The abandonment being revealed through our wrong behavior and through our improper worship of God. James 5, 19-20, My brothers, if one of you wanders from the truth and someone causes him to return, you should know that whoever turns a sinner from his wandering path will save him from death, and it will cover many sins. Okay, let's reread the final three verses of Hosea chapter 10. Hosea chapter 10, we're going to read the final three verses. Open your Bibles, please. 
starting at verse 13. You have plowed wickedness, reaped iniquity, and eaten the fruit of lies, because you trusted in your own way. In your large numbers of warriors, turmoil will erupt from your peoples, and all your fortresses will be destroyed. Just as Shalman destroyed Beit Arbel on the day of battle, when mothers were dashed to pieces right along with their children, thus will be done to you, Bethel, because of your great wickedness. At dawn, the king of Israel will be completely cut off. You know, I think it's hard in our time to internalize the depth of terror, such a thought of what happened at Arbella must have brought to Hosea, and then he, as he communicated it to his people. Yet both the Bible and history prove that the vast majority of Israelites did not believe it. It is probably not that different between the actuality of the, the Holocaust against the Jews in the 1940s and how even when invoking such an image as a warning today against what's coming in the end times or even in such wars as is happening today even in the Ukraine that people shy away from thinking about it in realistic terms because it seems that such genocide and mayhem could not possibly re be repeated by more modern civilized people. Even so, history proves that not only will such atrocities be repeated, they can happen at an even greater intensity and scope that is unfathomable to our minds. And it seems like human nature often responds by simply just kind of blocking out that unpleasant possibility. The Lord says that such atrocities will be done to Ephraim Israel because of their great wickedness. And then a place that is symbolic of their great wickedness is mentioned, Bethel. Now this is because Bethel is one of those places in Israel that the golden calves that Jeroboam, King Jeroboam had fashioned as images of Jehovah had them set up and where thousands of Israelites would regularly go to pay homage and sacrifice. Well, the mention of the king perishing at dawn misses the essence of what the verse is saying. The Hebrew word melech that can be translated as king can also be translated as monarchy. Okay. That is, while a king is a person, the monarchy is the government structure. Here the meaning clearly is that Israel's entire government shall be cut off permanently, and not just a change to a new king, something that's been happening with alarming regularity over the past few decades in Israel. Okay. The usual Hebrew word for cut off is karet. That's not what's used here. Rather, the word is Dama, and it means to terminate, it means to come to an end. Koret invariably includes a spiritual sense and a source, in that God is part of what is being, uh, what a person is being cut off from. But here, since Dama is used, no spiritual sense is meant. 
It simply means that the government of Israel, with Israelite kings sitting on the throne, will no longer exist for Israel. The end of a nation's government is the end of that nation. Ephraim, Israel's time as a Hebrew nation, a kingdom unto itself, is being prophesied as soon to be over. Let's move on now to Hosea chapter 11. Open your Bibles back up again to Hosea chapter 11. We're going to read it all. Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more the prophets called them, the farther they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals. They offered incense to idols. Yes, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by their arms. But they did not know that it was I who was healing them, who was guiding them on through human means with reins made of love. With them I was like someone removing the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down to feed them. He will not return to the land of Egypt, but Asher will be his king, because they refused to repent. The sword will fall on his cities, destroying the bars of his gates, because they follow their own advice. My people are hanging in suspense about returning to me, and although they call them upwards, Nobody makes a move. Ephraim, how can I give you up or surrender you, Israel? How, how could I treat you like Adma or make you like Zovim? My heart recoils at the idea as compassion warms within me. I will not give vent to the fierceness of my rage. I will not return to destroy Ephraim, for I am God, not a human being, the Holy One among you. So I will not come in fury. They will go after Adonai, who will roar like a lion, for he will roar, and the children will come, trembling from the west. They will tremble like a bird as they come from Egypt, like a dove as they come from the land of Asher, and I will resettle them in their own houses. Now, <clears throat> chapter 11 is immensely poetic. It's also immensely intense, expressing pain and love. And in my estimation, it expresses God's pain, and yet His enduring love for a set-apart people that He has carefully nurtured since their beginning. It is, I think, the most emotional and passionate passage in the entire Old Testament that deals with God's relationship with Israel. I mean, the depth of the emotion involved could only be expressed by poetic words, as opposed to mere historical narrative. Now, you know, it's important that we recognize the literary device called anthropomorphism, because that's at play here. Now, another less fancy and easier word for that is figurative. The Bible 
Well, anthropomorphism means to apply human traits to non-human creatures or gods or objects. The Bible's full of metaphor and anthropomorphism that often is taken by misinformed Christianity as something meant fully literal. So, human emotions and human institutions can be ascribed to God. And it's a very big mistake because it greatly mischaracterizes in ways that lead to very strange doctrines. Now, for instance, as concerns both the Father and the Son, marriage terms are often used to describe their relationship with their worshipers to the point that a thought like the Bride of Christ is taken fully literally to mean actual marriage with Christ and thus members of His Church becoming actually Yeshua's spouses. That is, Jesus is often portrayed as exactly a husband in human marriage terms, and we, His followers, as exactly His wife in those same exact terms. We also have God speaking of Israel as a son, or as a king of Israel being called a son of God. These are anthropomorphic terms, they're figurative terms, they're not literal. Israel is not God's actual son or child, as we think of it in human family institution. Nor does any king of Israel have some kind of actual father-son, biological or mysterious organic relationship with Yehovah like we have here on earth between father and the son, even if that earthly relationship were to be nearly perfect. Rather it is that in order to best help we mere humans to understand our relationship with God, how He sees it, how He operates, how He makes decisions. Human terms and examples are used because it gives us an approximation using a vocabulary that we have, that we use in everyday life, and so it gives us something we can relate to. So even though the major theme of chapter 11 is God's fierce fatherly devotion and love to His child, His son, Israel, we, we must not take this theme to extremes. Just as when we are told that Jehovah is sending Israel back to Egypt, it's not used in the sense that Israel is actually making a true reverse exodus and literally forming up in columns and marching back to Egypt. It is instead designed to connect the ideas of the original exodus for the sake of Israel's redemption from an oppressor with the new reality of Israel entering into a process that once again puts them into the hands of an oppressor within a foreign nation, and that they will at some time in the future again need to be rescued from God and by God. 
Now, to risk it becoming too repetitive, I'm going to say this. To correctly interpret Hosea, we must begin by understanding that God's problem with Israel is entirely, it is 100% covenant-based. Covenant-based. Israel is no longer at peace with God because they have broken the covenant. The covenant of Moses, the law, by their unfaithfulness, that consists primarily of perverted man-made beliefs, discussing worship practices, and just plain bad behavior. Therefore, since the anticipation of this situation was actually built into the covenant of Moses at its inception at Mount Sinai, then naturally what we see playing out are the specific penalties and consequences for the equally specific spelled out violations of the covenant. This is not God making it up as He goes. So as God begins to use figurative and anthropomorphic terms to explain His thought process, what Israel did, and how God is responding to it, these potential violations and their accompanying penalties were contained and spelled out already in the covenant of Moses. And they had been fully available for Israel to see, had they wanted to know. First one of chapter 11 begins, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, Israel was never an actual child nor an actual son of Jehovah, the way that pagan religions often thought of their God-to-human relationships. Even so, God relates His thoughts to Hosea using words that bring to mind an earthly father-son relationship. Let's always remember that we must discard any modern Western notion of a typical father-son relationship as we practice it today. The character and the nature of a Middle Eastern father-son relationship was quite different than anything going on today. A father and son relationship, especially when it involved a firstborn, was essentially as a senior and a junior family authority. A father's family authority was absolute. He controlled all. He owned all within that family. He could kill his child if he thought that was the proper punishment for a serious enough infraction. Once a son matured sufficiently, his job was to become as an extension of his father. Even as an agent of his father's authority, if such an authority was granted to that son. Until his father passed away, the son's actions were always to reflect his father's will, his father's wishes. So it is in that context that the opening of verse 1 
Israel is characterized as that child, that son, even a firstborn. Israel's collective will was supposed to reflect their father's will, God's will, and his authority, as it was expressed in the Law of Moses. So to make a finer point of it, what we've been reading about thus far through the first ten chapters of Hosea is that Israel is likened first to an unfaithful wife, Gomer, later to a rebellious child, a rebellious son. A rebellious son for a Middle Eastern father was a disaster. Rebellion was defined as a child that goes his own way and does his own will, and not that of his father. Yes, there is typically a warmth of relationship that's included, but never think of that warmth as being the overriding factor within that relationship or its structure. The love of a son was to express itself in his clear and visible determination to carry out the will and always to display the character of his father, never his own. Now this male child would, after all, carry on the bloodline and the relationship and reputation of the family patriarch and nearly always the family wealth. In the case of the relationship between God and Israel, in return for Israel's obedience and devotion to his father, Jehovah God, God says, I loved him. Now the sonship words used by Hosea are meant to tie in with Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4 verses 22 and 23 say this, Then you are to tell Pharaoh, Adonai says, Israel is my firstborn son. I have told you to let my son go in order to worship me, but you've refused to let him go. Well, then I'm going to kill your firstborn son. And when we read the words, I love him, we are to take it in the sense of the word as it was understood in ancient times. Ahav, meaning love, indeed included the idea of, a, of warm affection, but you see it also revolved around the idea of loyalty. The same word in Hebrew was used in the Armana letters where love is proclaimed by a number of vassal kings to the Pharaoh of Egypt. Now clearly the ratio of loyalty to warm affection leaned heavily towards loyalty, and we would do best to always let this biblical term ahav, love, lean more in that direction as we study the scriptures. Think of it more in terms of loyalty. Now although the second half of verse 1 is often translated as, out of Egypt I called my son, in reality it's worded a little bit differently. The ancient Hebrew expression is mimisraim, mimisraim, meaning ever since Egypt. 
So in Hosea, this expression is definitely meant to recall something that took place from five to six centuries earlier, the Egyptian captivity and then the Exodus. That said, in order for us to get the best understanding of what the thought is in modern English terms, out of Egypt probably works best. Now to call, says, out of Egypt I called my son. To call, kara, in Hebrew doesn't mean it like we would call up somebody on the phone and have a conversation. The idea is to proclaim, or, or better perhaps, it is to summon. To summon with authority behind it. It is not a request. It is a moment in which the person who is in authority intends to gather someone or something to him for a special purpose and tells that person, time's now. If this verse of Hosea sounds familiar to you, out of Egypt I called my son, it ought to. Matthew chapter 2 verses 13 through 15. After they had gone, an angel of Adonai appeared to Yosef in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and escape to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you to leave. For Herod is going to look for the child in order to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and left during the night for Egypt, where he stayed until Herod died. This happened in order to fulfill what Adonai had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I will call my son. So, here we learn that the Gospel writer Matthew was directly referring to this passage in Hosea, and so the prophet, he cryptically spoke to her, didn't name him, turns out it was Hosea. Matthew sees in Christ the latest and the newest fulfillment of this prophecy of God calling His Son out of Egypt. Now we'll regularly see in the Bible that a word or a phrase of prophecy can do double duty. It can have meaning in two or more different scenarios and in two or more different eras, although the fulfillments are closely related. It's not a one or the other situation. For instance, Matthew was not telling us that the calling his son out of Egypt prophecy was taken wrongly in times past when it applied to Israel. In the book of Exodus, God indeed called his son Israel out of Egypt. In Hosea, God says he will again call his son Israel out of Egypt, but it's in another sense it's, that isn't made clear. And in Matthew, the identity of God's Son morphs from national Israel to the ideal Israel, which is represented in God's Son, Yeshua. And out of Egypt, God will call His Son, Jesus. Israel was called to come to the Promised Land from Egypt, and later so was Yeshua and his family called to return to the Promised Land from Egypt. Well, verse 2 presents a bit of a problem. 
and that it's hard to extract the thought from it, even though the words seem to make some sense. The first problem is that someone called they called them, but the more they called, the more the people of Israel pulled away from them. Who's they and who's them? I think the complete Jewish Bible has it right in assuming that this has to be referring to the biblical prophets. God summoned Israel through his prophets, but they rebelled. Israel rebelled, they would not heed the call. And it seemed to God that no matter how much he called through however many of his prophets, Israel wandered away even further from faithfulness and from truth. And in what way did God measure how far away they wandered? It was in their increasing worship of the Baals and offering their sacrifices to images. Now it might be instructional to understand that worshiping the Baals and offering sacrifices to images really wasn't merely two ways of saying the same thing. These were two quite different acts on Israel's part, but in both cases these acts were rationalizations. The first way was to worship pagan gods, the Baals. The second way was to worship the golden calf representation of Jehovah. So, you know, as we think about these foolish Israelites, perhaps we should look at ourselves in the mirror. Christianity and Judaism steadily developed their own set of head-scratching rationalizations in our worship practices, our icons, and our symbols. People don't change much as the centuries fly by. We always manage to find grounds to justify our own preferences and choices and to feel good about it. But Israel was finding out the hard way that God does not accept our rationales for disobedience to Him. In any era, for any reason, and the consequences for such a lapse can be pretty dire. Verse 3 is basically saying that Israel's blatant disobedience certainly wasn't God's fault. It was He that personally trained them up, so there could have been no error. Jehovah says that He personally taught Ephraim how to walk. Now the image being portrayed is of a parent helping and teaching a young child to take his or her first cautious and unsure steps. It's meant to evoke a tender, a patient father that spends the necessary time with his child, making it as easy as he can for him. Now, although it is a different word, Judaism adopted the term halakha to present their doctrinal beliefs about how God wants them to live. Halakha means to walk in the way. 
the child had no doubt who the parent was, nor that it was they who were there to help them. What did Ephraim Israel do in return for such loving care by their father? They gave thanks to the Baals. They showed no love, no loyalty to the one who actually taught them, raised them up, healed them when they were they fell or were sick. Again, looking to the law of Moses, there is a principle that says if a parent raises a child correctly but that child becomes a rebel, the parents bear no responsibility for that child's wrong behavior. In fact, that child ought to die for rejection of his parents' direction and correction. Deuteronomy chapter 21 verses 18 through 21. If a man has a stubborn rebellious son who will not obey what his father or mother says, and even after they discipline him, he still refuses to pay attention to them, then his father and mother are to take hold of him, bring him out to the leaders of his town at the gate of that place, and say to the leaders of his town, This son of ours is stubborn, he's rebellious, he doesn't pay attention to us, he lives wildly, he gets drunk. Then all the men of his town are to stone him to death. In this way you will put an end to such wickedness among you, and all Israel will hear about it and be afraid. A rebellious child is violating the basic commandment to honor one's mother and father. God is establishing two things here in Hosea 11.3 that are going to quickly come into play. First, He is the metaphorical father to the metaphorical young child, Israel, was a good parent. He did everything right to teach them well, so he bears no guilt at how Israel turned out. Second, the penalty for such an incorrigible child as Israel is what? Death. Israel deserves death and their bloods upon their own heads. On the other hand, God is a merciful, loving Father to His Son. And the last thing in the world He wants to do is destroy His own child. So He's torn on the matter. It's so very painful for Jehovah to have been treated in such a way in return for all of His kindness. And to give a fuller sense of what God is saying to Israel, we find the same thought in the prophet Jeremiah, no doubt because he was greatly influenced by Hosea's writings. Jeremiah 31.19, Isn't Ephraim my very dear son, a child who delights me so? I speak about him all the time. I can't help but recall him to mind. In some, I deeply yearn for him. I will surely show him favor, says Adonai. Now, Hosea 11.4 is a continuation of verse 3. Probably it's best to have read it, and I will read it, as one unified thought. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by their arms, but they did not know that it was I 
who was teaching them and healing them, who was guiding them on through human means with reins made of love. With them, I was like someone removing the yoke from their jaws. I bent down to feed them. Now, the words of verse 4, as we have them today, are somewhat corrupted. However, the thought that's contained in them isn't terribly hard to discern, especially when we reconnect verse 4 to verse 3, instead of separating them. See, the first thing we must notice is a shifting from the metaphor as Israel as a child to Israel as an animal that is dependent upon a human caring for it. Thus, when we read of the reins of love early in verse 4, sometimes in our other Bible versions it's called cords or, or ropes, it needs to be understood in the context of a beast pulling a load or a plow. The idea is of a gentle leading in that instead of putting the young animal to heavy work through the fixing of a large wooden yoke, upon its neck. Instead, it's made more comfortable by removing it for the time being. Now, too many times we'll find doctrines of Judeo-Christianity being anachronistically used to interpret verses 3 and 4, and it sends us on a road to allegory instead of to the intended meaning. Now, I think Mayor Gruber has done a, a masterful job in unlocking the sense of this passage in modern English passing along to us what it meant to its ancient readers. It's this, God did not put a yoke upon Israel in order to direct them by use of the reins attached to the yoke, as humans do in order to control a beast of burden. Rather, He used metaphorical reins of love. Instead of tangible ropes and cords to direct that animal, Israel, God used the intangible bonds of love. In fact, what is ironic is that part of that bond of love included the written Torah. God showed them what love really is. Love towards Him, love towards one another. See, the Torah is more than a law code, it's a curriculum. The Torah is a curriculum that teaches what real, God-inspired life actually is. Now, Gruber uses the human example of a Jewish mother who always means well. She is forever attempting to draw her child near to her. But that attempt can be perceived in different ways. The mother, mother meaning one thing, the child interpreting it as another. From the mother's viewpoint, the ties she seeks are in love and in care for her child. For the child, sometimes her attempt can be seen as control or maybe even enslavement. There is a term called smother love. That while it is not entirely applicable to what this passage is describing, it does explain why a child might rebel against the attempts to train and to correct. Smother love 
means a relationship between a parent and child in which the parent is so overbearing, so overprotective, that that child's normal, normal psychological development is stunted. Now, from the perspective of an 8th century BC Israelite, here is how I think we ought to understand this. And equally importantly, how I think we ought to apply this to our lives as believers. On the one hand, we see God's grace and enduring patience on display. His desire is not to control or to enslave, but rather to teach the immature child how to have life within God's economy. God didn't design the universe and all the creatures that inhabit it in a piecemeal fashion. He designed every aspect of it to work in harmony with Him and with a mysterious synergy that can bring happiness to humans if only humans will accept it. He fleshes out what that harmony looks like in the Bible. Beginning with the Torah, He lays out the boundaries and the operating procedures of it in the Law of Moses. And When Israel for a time understood what an incredible gift of love the Torah and the Law was, they prospered. They were secure. They were at their happiest. But now, in Ephraim Israel, it was decided that the Torah and the Law of Moses was not an easy and tender bond of love between them and God. It was a heavy yoke. It burdened them. It restricted them. It enslaved them. So they proceeded to shuck it off. So they could do as every man saw fit in his own eyes. James, the brother of Jesus, understood all this very well. He knew that when a young animal or a small child is just learning, their rearing and their training must be done carefully with bonds of love. And so all must proceed with baby steps. Too heavy of a load must not be placed upon them too early. Now, by no means does that mean that the child has no rules and no boundaries, that there are different rules and different boundaries for every, from everybody else. It's only that there is more understanding and less required at first during the earliest training period, so there is ample time for that child to grow into maturity that becomes then capable of the more challenging requirements that are going to come later. This is reflected in a famous passage in the New Testament that was given the name the Jerusalem Council. Turn with me to the book of Acts. The book of Acts chapter 15. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. I'd like you to read along with me. We're going to read verses 1 through 31. Acts 15, starting at verse 1. 
But some men came down from Judah to Antioch and began teaching the brothers, you cannot be saved unless you undergo Berit Milad, unless you go and undergo a circumcision in the manner prescribed by Moses. Now this brought them into no small measure of discord and dispute with Saul and with uh, Barnabas. So the congregation assigned Shaul, Paul, and Barnabas, and some of themselves to go and put this Shelah, put this question, before the emissaries and the elders up in Jerusalem. Well, after being set off by the congregation, they made their way through Phoenicia and Shomron, Samaria, recounting in detail how the Gentiles had turned to God, and this news brought great joy to, great joy to all the brothers. Now, upon their arrival in Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the Messianic community, including the emissaries and the elders, and they reported what God had done through them. But some of those who had come to trust were from the party of the Parushim, of the Pharisees. And they stood up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and direct them to observe the Torah of Moses. Well, the emissaries and the elders met to look into this matter. After a lengthy debate, Kepha, Peter, got up and said to them, Brothers, you yourselves know that a good while back God chose me from among you to be the one by whose mouth the Goyim, the Gentiles, should hear the message of the good news and come to trust. And God, who knows the heart, bore them witness by giving the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, to them, just as He did to us. That is, He made no distinction between us and them, but cleansed their heart by trust. So why are you putting God to the test now by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we have had the strength to bear? No, it is through love and kindness of the Lord Yeshua that we trust and are delivered. It's the same with them. Then the whole assembly kept still as they listened to Barnabas and Shaul tell what signs and miracles God had done through them among the Gentiles. Yaakov, James, broke the silence to reply, Brothers, he said, hear what I have to say. Shimon has told us in detail what God did when he first began to show his concern for taking from among the Gentiles a people to bear his name. And the words of the prophets are in complete harmony with this, for it is written, After this I will return and I will rebuild the fallen tent of David. I will rebuild its ruins, I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. That is, all the Gentiles who have been called by my name, says Adonai, who is doing these things. Now all this has been known for ages. Therefore my opinion is that we should not put obstacles in the way of the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write them a letter telling them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from fornication, from what's strangled, and from blood. For from the earliest times Moses had had in every city those who proclaim him, with his words being read in the synagogues every Shabbat. Then the emissaries and the elders together with the whole Messian community decided to select men from among themselves to send to Antioch with Saul and Barnabas. They sent Judah called Barsaba and Selah, both leading men among the brothers with the following letter, from the emissaries and the elders, your brothers, to the brothers from among the Gentiles throughout Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some people went out from among us without our authorization, and they have upset you with their talk, unsettling your minds. 
So we have decided unanimously to select men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnaba and Shaul, who have dedicated their lives to upholding the name of our Lord, Yeshua the Messiah. So we have sent Yehuda and Silah, and they will confirm in person what we are writing. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to lay any heavier burden on you than the following requirements. To abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from fornication. And if you keep yourselves from these, you will be doing the right thing. Shalom. Well, the messengers were sent off and went to Antioch, where they gathered the group together and delivered the letter. And after reading it, the people were delighted by its encouragement. See, this passage in Matthew treats the Gentiles coming into the Hebrew faith of trusting in Yeshua as Messiah as young children are treated. It follows the same God pattern that we find in Hosea 11. The question for these children, these new Gentile believers, Christians if you would, as they grow into maturity is this. Will you see the incredible love and importance of what you have been taught and of the boundaries you've been given? Or will you shuck it off? Because you see the increasing obligations and stricter boundaries as enslavement. And you become rebellious. And you become ungrateful, as did Ephraim Israel. Okay, we'll continue with Hosea next time.